What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor <coughs> things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Be God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Jesus, simply put, we need you. We need you, we need you, we need you. And ultimately, we need you to speak to us this morning. We each come in here as a mixed bag of people with various emotions. Uh, some of us were uh, back at home with family, and that was stressful. Uh, for some of us, um, the new year has been anything but uh, good. Uh, so we ask that you, in this moment, through the preaching of your word, would you speak to us? Jesus, I know and I trust and believe that you are a better preacher than myself, so would you preach uh, to our hearts this morning? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, it is a joy uh, to cross the, the, the border to come uh, see you guys over here in Texas. I enjoyed the love for Shreveport, uh, the greatest uh, city uh, in the South and in the world. Uh, <laughs> Most people wouldn't say that, uh, but you got to rep the hometown. Uh, so it is, a, it is a joy to be with you guys. Uh, to kick us off, uh, like Slim said, I have two children, one on the way. I have a two-year-old, uh, eight-month-old, and my wife is currently pregnant with our third. Uh, so please pray for us, as many of you guys are looking. Uh, but my two-year-old is currently uh, in a season of his life where he is starting to uh, experience a a little bit of separation anxiety. Uh, so meaning every time I or my wife leave, he uh, gets anxious, he gets, he gets nervous, and he's trying to figure out uh, why the normal things in his life are changing. Um, he's trying to understand why the normal liturgy of his life is being disrupted. And while my son isn't able to necessarily articulate it or even understand it, uh, I think he's wondering uh, where his mom and dad have gone, and ultimately, will they come back and get him? Maybe he's wondering, will they forget about me? It's in those moments where he's crying, he's distressed, he's anxious, uh, that I find, unfortunately, that my natural disposition is to respond to him by saying, relax or using my, my dad tone of voice and telling him uh, to chill out. Uh, and in fact, 
in those moments, or specifically that moment, he needs to be reassured that his mother and father are not going to leave him. He needs to be reassured that, that my love for him is as secure as it can be. He'll have to come to an understanding by experience that his father and his mother will always come back to get him. I need to show him the security that is found in my love. And I think for most of us in this room, if we're honest with each other or with ourselves this morning, uh, we each have experienced or are currently experiencing uh, what I would argue is a spiritual separation anxiety. We fear that there is a possibility for us to be separated from God, or better yet, that God would separate himself from us. The spir spiritual separation anxiety seems to pop up during times of suffering, heartache, it creeps in when you feel overwhelmed with work, or maybe the busyness of the daily grind seems to be consuming you. It rears its ugly head during financial uncertainties and breakups. But I think the supreme way we experience this separation anxiety is the moment right after we fall into sin. You respond in an angry outburst. You view pornography again after you swore that you wouldn't. You realize that you've done your best to hide the fact that you are a Christian. You found yourself coping your anxiety with alcohol and you may say in that moment, there's a thought that pops into your head, will God forgive me this time? Will God choose to now turn his face away from me? It's in those very moments where the, the sound of condemnation rings louder than the melody of grace. And it's in that context, in that moment, where Romans chapter 8 is meant to be a pillow for our weary heads. Romans 8 might be the best chapter in the entire Bible. Verse 1 speaks of no condemnation, and then verse 39 speaks of no separation. Paul is taking us by the hand and, and leading us through some of the highest truths in all of Scripture. Paul is acting as a skillful counselor who wants to cure our separation anxiety with the truth of God's far-reaching love. It's safe to say that you can summarize Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39 in three words. Jesus loves you. What message do you need ringing in your ear all of 2020? It is this, that Jesus loves you. As a Christian, what is the most truest thing about you? It is this, you are loved by God. The truest thing about you is not that you are merely a sinner, although that is true. It is not that you are a, a broken person, although that it is true. It is not that you are simply a mess, although that, it is that is true. But if you are in Christ, the most central thing to your identity is that you are loved by God. In our culture, it's popular for people to say that in 2020, I'm cutting all the people out of my life. But our text today teaches us that Instead of God cutting off all the toxic people in his life, he has chosen to love them. My prayer for us this morning is that we would find ourselves shocked by the love of God. 
Isn't it easy to try to tame and domesticate the love of God? I think if I do my tasks well this morning, with the Spirit's help, we will leave here doing two things, asking the question, can that be true? And then secondly, respond in worship. God says to us this morning that his love for us is as real as our next breath. If you look at the structure of Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, you'll notice that it asks four rhetorical who questions. Question number one, who can be against us in verse 31? Question number two, who can bring charges against us in verse 33? Question number three, who can condemn us? Verse 34. Question four, who or what can separate us? Verse 35. As, you, as we look and, and meditate on each of these questions, we'll see that Paul is answering each one with a resounding no one. You can feel as if you're putting your hand on the page that Paul's pulse is quickening as he shoots off these questions one by one like bombs bursting after another. Paul is using this uh, rhetorical questions as a way to instill in us that a confidence that God's grip on us is tighter than our grip on him. And truly, beloved, we both needed and wanted to be this way. Because if our assurance of salvation is left to our ability to hold tight on to God, if uh, the assurance of our salvation is left on our ability, uh, ability to hold close to him or keep the faith, if our, the assurance of our salvation rests on our ability to keep the law of God, then you and I are without hope and we should be grieving rather than rejoicing. But the good news this morning is that God indeed will keep us in his love. If you look at these four questions, you'll notice the first three are legal in nature. And the last one is, focuses on our relationship as adopted children. Paul goes from the courtroom to the living room and tells us that the judge that could condemn us has become our father. And I want to look at our text through two points. I want us to look at the language of law and then the language of love. So first, the language of law. The curtain of our text raises and we are greeted with these words. What then shall we say to these things in verse 31? In other words, Paul is saying, what shall we say in response to these things or what shall we say in, with these things in view? Paul is saying that all that I have written up until this very point was meant to lead you here. It's safe to say that, that the first eight chapters of Romans were written so that Paul could say these words. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to the middle of chapter 3, we are given news of our desperate condition. Our rap sheet has been laid out for all to see. Romans 1 through 3 teaches us, uh, in the words of another pastor, that you and I were so close to hell that we smell like smoke. It paints for us the picture that our greatest problem is not our lack of resources. It's not merely that we're broken people. It unequivocally confesses that we are sinners on our way to destruction due to our breaking of God's law. And then all of a sudden, Paul turns the corner and says that there is one who has provided the means for you to be saved. 
Paul says you and I did not have the necessary funds in our checking account to make us right with God, but God has credited to you the righteousness of Christ. Romans chapter 4 teaches that we receive this gift by faith. Romans chapter 5 walks us through Jesus as one who has died for the godless. Romans 6 teaches us of our newfound relationship with sin. Romans 7 tells us that we have this desire for holiness, but we can't uh, live it out. And then Romans chapter 8, 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later in the chapter, Paul will tell us that we are indwelt by the very Spirit of God. The same Spirit who prays for us when we can't pray for ourselves. He'll also tell the people of God that all things work together for good. Brothers and sisters, what are we to say to these things? Paul summarizes in four words. God is for us. How would you summarize all of the book of Romans? How would you summarize the entirety of your salvation? How would you summarize your life story? Four words, God is for us. Truly think about that for one second. Let it dig deep in your bones. God is for you. I think Paul has his Bible open and he's reading Psalm 56. He sees David writing about his suffering and how his enemies are trampling him all the day long. His finger gets down to verse 9, and he reads these words. This I know, that God is for me, and God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What does it mean that God is for us? It means this, God has our back. God is in our corner. God is working on our behalf. It is to say that God will destroy all of his and our foes. Paul applies this truth further. He says, next, who can be against us? As you read it, you feel that Paul is naive. There are many people against us. And Paul will say that in this very, next, this very text, but Paul takes comfort in the fact that with God on the side of his people, there is no reason to be afraid. But the question that's worth asking is how can I know that to be true, maybe and especially when God seems like he is the very one against me? If you think that question is absurd, if you think that question is borderline blasphemous, then keep living. One mentor of mine told me that every person is walking towards a storm, they're walking in a storm, or they're walking out of a storm. How can we know that God is for us when we're grieving the loss of someone that we were certain God could have kept alive? How can we know that God is for us when we are walking through the sorrow of a miscarriage? How can we know that God is for us when emotionally, spiritually, physically, and mentally we are spent? How can we know that God is for us when the darkness of depression is a crippling fog? How can we know in the deepest fiber of our being God is for us in the confusion of postpartum? How can we know that God is for us when every piece of life is crashing around us? 
How can we know that God is for us when the rent is due, the light bill is due, tuition is due, and we simply don't have it? How can we know that God is for us when our own conscience condemns us of sin? How can we know when we hear the law of God expounded week after week after week and we find ourselves to be sinners in his sight? Paul tells us in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we know that God is for us? Paul tells us that God the Father did not spare his own son. He did not spare the Lord Jesus Christ from death. This is an echo of Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22, Abraham's loyalty is tested. God calls Abraham, calls Abraham to sacrifice his child, the child of promise, Isaac. And right when Abraham is about to kill Isaac, God stops him and says, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And the way that God will bless Abraham and the way that God will bless his offspring and the way that God will bless us is by not sparing Jesus from his wrath. Do you realize that in order for us to be blessed by God, Jesus would have to be cursed? At the end of every worship service at my church, and I'm assuming here as well, uh, you'll have someone who pronounces the benediction, a blessing on God's people. Sometimes whoever it is may raise their hands. At our church, we often use number six, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you, give you peace. And at my church, we respond by singing the words to Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and to make his face shine upon us. But right there in that moment where we are hearing that blessing, we should have in our ears the truth that that blessing was only accomplished through Jesus' cursing. While we hear the words, Lord, bless you and keep you, Jesus heard the words, curse you and forsake you. He has given us peace because Jesus was given wrath. God has spared us by not sparing his own son. If you find yourself needing assurance this morning that God loves you, look further, no further than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to ask God to please give us more, give us another sign, he would say that I've given you all that I can give you. I have given you my very son. Maybe you walked into church this morning and you're not a Christian. Uh, you come out of respect for your family, or maybe uh, you're curious and you are interested in what's, what's going on, I want to let you know God invites you to escape the wrath that we all deserve, that we don't say or read or sing these things because we believe these things uh, to be merely morale boosters. We really believe that there is a real God who will really judge sin, but who will really save you from your sins. If you're a person in that room, I would love more than anything else to talk to you about that. Jesus took the wrath on our behalf so that we could experience the peace of God. Paul moves on and he adds a beautiful phrase. He says, how will he not graciously give us all things? What does Paul mean by all things? 
Does it mean that everything we ask is given to us? I don't think so. This language echoes verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But notice the text does not stop there. It says, it continues, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that God will graciously give us all things that we need in order to look more like Jesus. Everything you need to look like the Lord Jesus Christ, God will give you. Paul is using this line of of logic showing the greatest to the least. Uh, Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that I um, pay several thousands of dollars to take my family on a vacation. Uh, Let's pretend it's Disney World because it probably won't happen. Uh, But I pay for hotels, flights, tickets, food, a rental car. I waste no resources to pull off this extravagant vacation. We wake up, the day comes, we wake up in our hotel rooms, we eat some breakfast, we make our way to the park. I pull up to the park and I see a sign that says $20 for parking. And in that moment, I flip my lid. I throw stuff, I scream, and I pack everybody up, and I drive all the way back to Louisiana. If you were to look at me, you would call me a fool. Why? Because I spent all of this money to pour out this lavish event. What is $20 more? Paul is saying that God has given us Jesus. Won't he give us everything else we need to look like Jesus? Beloved, the good news of the gospel is that God is more committed to your holiness than you are. God is more committed to our being healthier spiritually in 2020 than we are. God is more committed to ensuring that we get to glory than we are. Isn't that good news? But here is the more good news. God will use even the most heartbreaking moments and situations to make you look like Jesus. How is that good news? It's good news because if you are a Christian, our suffering is never in vain. Our pain and our sorrow is never pointless. They are the the means that God is fitting us for glory. Paul continues this language of the law by asking two more judicial questions. In verse 33, he asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? In verse 34, he asks, who is it to condemn? He's basically asking, what court can bring God's people to trial in regards to their salvation? Paul is saying that there is no process of appeals in regarding to our standing before God. Paul is saying that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of four things in the second half of verse 34. He says, first, Christ has died. Second, Christ is risen. Third, Christ is reigning. And fourth, Christ is praying. I think we hear often, or we should hear often every day that Christ has died for us. He has indeed risen for us. He is indeed reigning for us, but have you meditated, thought about, fixed your eyes on the fact that currently, right now, in this moment, Jesus is sitting on the throne of the Father praying for you? 
When we gather here and pray together, the shocking truth that God is praying for us, when you awkwardly stumble through your prayers, God is praying for you. When you don't know what to pray, how to pray, if you should pray, God is praying for you. When you think no one else is praying for you, God is praying for you. One Scottish minister says this, if I could hear the the voice of Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Our grounds for assurance, our grounds for being secure in the love of God is only found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look for anywhere, if you look anywhere else for that assurance, if you look to the strength of your faith, if you look to your work ethic and your ability to be disciplined, if you look to your ability to expound reformed doctrine, you will find that your assurance is on shaky ground. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's Paul assuring us with the language of the law. But now he moves on to assure us with the language of love. He moves from formality to intimacy. Let's look at the language of love. Paul asks one final rhetorical question in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This question, in a sense, changes Paul's argument. Paul has previously been speaking in judicial terms, But now he flips the script and he moves to more familial terms. This would be understood in Paul's day as significant uh, because of the Roman laws surrounding adoption. Under Roman law, adoption involved a legal transaction by which the child who was adopted was released from his natural father's legal authority and then was transferred to the authority of the adoptive father. A son or a daughter who was adopted received all of the rights of the new family, and they became heir to the adoptive father's estate. Once that child was brought into his new father's estate, there was nothing that could separate the child from his new adoptive father, specifically his inheritance. The child could never be written out of the new father's will, The child's status in reality had completely changed and by law could never be altered. Brothers and sisters, you and I used to be under the authority of sin, but God in his mercy adopted us as children and has given us the right to be called the children of God. Paul, because of of all of this, Paul says, who can separate you from that love now? Paul then begins to list seven things uh, that do not have the ability to separate us from the love of God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. All of these potential threats laid down exhausted at the feet of divine love. Paul in verse 36 quotes Psalm 44 verse 22 and says, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are sheep, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Paul is using Psalm 44 to describe the, the context and situation that he and the people of God are in. He's ultimately asking, can death separate us from the love of Christ? What's your greatest fear? I'm willing to bet that it's something that's connected to death. And Paul is using Psalm 44 in this context to say that there is a love that is stronger than death itself. Look at what Paul says in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can we have hope? How can we have assurance in the midst of suffering, doubts, calamity, pain, broken hearts, and everything else that afflicts us in this fallen world? Paul says we have hope because we are more than conquerors. In the original language, it would be super conquerors. This idea of conquering is is woven throughout Scripture, but it's a central theme, not surprisingly, in the book of Revelation. Listen to these verses in Revelation really quickly. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which which is in the paradise of God. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, a stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne and as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Paul is saying that no matter the situation and circumstance, no matter the trials, the moments, nothing can ultimately destroy us because Jesus has conquered death itself. This is not to belittle suffering. This is not to say that suffering is easy or you should always walk through it with a smile on your face. But it is to say that we can have a real tangible hope and a joy in the midst of suffering. We share in the suffering of Jesus, but soon enough we will also share in the exaltation of Jesus. To follow in the steps of this crucified and raised king means we will die and be raised to life. We will conquer through all sorts of suffering. Why? because Jesus himself has conquered. Notice how Paul takes these beautiful truths and moves to triumphant praise in verses 38 to 39. For I am sure, I am certain that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's as if Paul can barely contain himself. He's saying that death and life, they can't do it. Angels, rulers, whatever up there that you want to throw out, they can't do it. Things present or in the future, nope, powers, height, depth, anything else in creation. Paul wants us to get this in our bones. There is nothing, there is no one, there is no thing, there is not a single iota that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Truly, Paul would agree with the hymn writer who wrote these words, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. 
Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Uh, But here's a question that is worth asking and answering to end our time together. How do we respond to this unshakable truth that we are secure in the love of Jesus? I think there's many ways we could respond, but the supreme one out of all of those is that we respond by worshiping, specifically worshiping through singing. This text was written so that you and I would sing. Have you noticed how often as you read through the the Psalms about how we respond to God's love with singing, specifically his acts of salvation? Psalm 511, that all those who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 19, I will be glad and I will exult in you. I will sing praise to your name. Psalm 51, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Psalm 63, for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. As you catch the rhythm of this text, you'll realize that the Apostle Paul wants you to exult in the triune God of grace. While this passage is very much truth to be internalized, it is also truth that is meant to be felt. It is truth that is meant to grip our hearts, truth that is meant to lead us into triumphant singing, maybe and especially when we do not feel like singing. I saw this firsthand as we visited, as I and my family visited my uh, wife's uh, grandfather in Michigan. My wife's grandfather is 84 84 years old uh, and began his transition to his heavenly home. During my visit uh, with him, he slept most of the time, but towards the end he woke up and was in kind of a daze. And while he was awake, we read scripture together And then we ended our time by singing the doxology. It was during our singing of the doxology where this 84-year-old man who could barely realize where he was at, who is moving towards the celestial shore, began to lift up with joy and smile and sing. And here's my question. What gave him the ability to sing Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What gave, him to, what gave him the strength to sing those words as he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death? It was this, he knew that he was loved by God. And my prayer for each of you this year is that you would know in the deepest parts of your soul that you are loved by God. Let me close our time by reading these words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. And as you hear these words, allow them to percolate in your soul. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints 
what is the breadth, length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Let me pray towards that end.